Hey, could I get a stand and uh, a stool? Or is there anyone back here? It doesn't look like there is. All right, here. This is uh, maybe a good illustration of the sort of thing that we're talking about, uh, where we need people to step up and do, do their, uh, their roles. And uh, I, I'll be right with you. Just hang tight for a little bit here. No, that's, that's fine. I'll just get this one. All right. I got to do everything around here, I'll tell you. Drumming last week and getting stools out. And next will be ushering and doing children's church, changing diapers. Oh, I need help. All right. Thank you. So good to see you here this morning and be a part of the worship. And uh, now we're going to hear from the Word. Uh, we just finished this little impromptu, broken-up, choppy series on faith and doubt. Um, and there's a lot more I could say about that, uh, but we might need to move on. So you'll, you'll want to be getting that book when it comes out, Benefit of the Doubt. Uh, but it, that just felt like a, a real good moment for us to reflect on what it is to have faith and, and uh, uh, to be out loud about uh, the reality of doubt and the okayness of thinking through things and questioning things and stuff of that sort. Uh, but before we go back into the book of Colossians, we want to take this week out, do one more pause before entering back into Colossians, and to talk about the body, the body of Christ, and uh, what it means to belong to the body of Christ. And uh, I'll be speaking specifically about uh, the body of Christ that's expressed here at Woodland Hills Church, but if you're visiting or watching uh, through television or podcasting or, or whatever, just take what I say and apply it to whatever body that you're associated with, whatever body you're plugged into. It has a universal applicability. Uh, but my direct focus will be on this body here at Woodland Hills Church. We want to entitle this message, God's Big Toes, for reasons that will become clear here in about eight minutes. I will tell you that this message this morning, I feel a, a gravitas about it, a weightiness, a sense of importance, maybe even urgency. Um, something. I, so I really want to ask you to really be attending to this and to open up your hearts and to open up your minds. Um, there's something that I think God really wants to communicate here this morning that has relevance to all of us, whether you're part of Woodland Hills or some other uh, body. Uh, this has, it's urgent. It feels extremely important and weighty. So pray with me here for a moment before we get into this. Abba, Father, we're your children. We pray for all those here or who are listening through podcasts, or television, or any other means. Those who aren't your children, we pray, God, that they would, in the course of this message, become your children by surrendering their lives to you. But God, we ask that you would infuse this message with your authority and your power. I pray, God, you use it to open up our minds to see, God, what our role is in the body of Christ. We each have a gift to give and, and a, a role to play in this body. I pray, God, that you give us a clarity about that and then give us a motivation to step into it, God. I pray that, that this, would, this message would be fire. I, I, I would have a, 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 just a power and authority, a fire to motivate us and to, God, show us and reveal to us and motivate us to step into the role that, that you've created us and saved us to play. 
But Holy Spirit, I can't make that happen with words. I have to yield it to you, surrender it to you, and say, have your way, have your way. Holy Spirit, come, have your way. Blow in this place and flow over all who are listening in other ways, Lord God. And build your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Excellent. I'll start this way. I I heard of a couple um, last year, heard about a couple who had visited Wilton Hills Church. They were in this kind of church shopping season of life. And um, they were excited to attend this church, heard some things about it, seemed to have a theology that lined up with our vision of the kingdom. And so they're excited to, to try it out. Uh, they came here with their two children, and unfortunately, there wasn't enough volunteers in the Sunday school uh, to be able to take them in. Um, they had to turn them away, which happens sometimes. And the person telling me, who knew, knew the, this couple, uh, told me that this couple had tried to sit through services before with their kids, and it was disastrous. Uh, their son was somewhat hyperactive, and it just it wasn't going to happen. So they ended up leaving. In fact, they, they never came back. Uh, they needed a church where they could have assurance that their kids would be careful, cared for and, and taught the Word of God and where they'd be free to be able to listen to the Word and, and to fellowship with people. And uh, if, they, if the church couldn't guarantee them that, then um, they, they were moving on. And that just grieved my heart. Because that's one couple, one family that we, we don't have a chance uh, to impact, to influence, to move in, in a kingdom direction. And that's one family that... Uh, we don't have a chance to benefit from whatever they would have to offer to the body of Christ. We've, we don't have any trouble with people choosing different churches uh, if, if they feel called to a different church. Uh, we, we've never felt it was our job to hang on to people or to get as many people to come here as possible or to build as big a church as possible. We don't think bigness is a sign of success. Uh, we don't think bigness is a sign of anything. It could be a sign that you're compromising. It, it could be a sign of failure. So we're not into just trying to get as many people as possible. Um, but to miss an opportunity to influence people for this reason grieves my heart. And there are some who might say, well, you know, if, if, if there wasn't space in, in the children's area and they had to go to a different church, it must not have been God's will for them to attend here. But as I, we're going to see in this message, that kind of thinking is, is simply a cop-out. Um, Things really do depend on us, what we do and what we don't do. And the reason is because by God's own design, the church is a body, a body in which all the parts need all the other parts, all the members need all the other members to do their role for the body to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. The main passage where Paul develops this body metaphor, and really it's a little bit more than a metaphor because we really are the hands and the feet of Jesus. The place where he develops this is 1 Corinthians 12. And so I want to read uh, this chapter, or these portions of this chapter, as I set up what I want to say this morning. Uh, Paul's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he says that all these gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit. And the Spirit distributes to each one, each and every one, just as he determines. And so just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Note that. So it is with Christ. What Paul's saying is that the church is the body of Christ so that what happens to us happens to Christ. Just as what happens to your body happens to you. So also what happens in the body of Christ happens to Christ. There's a strong personal identification and association between Christ and his church. And then Paul says, for we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. 
Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? It's a bizarre conception, this idea of an ear or an eye thinking it's the whole body. It reminds me of some like Salvador Dali's you know, surrealistic paintings where you have uh, you know, just an ear kind of walking around on its own. Uh, it, it's a bizarre conception. And yet, the, the truth is that people who are out there in, in the, and not associated with the church body, those Lone Ranger Christians, those bedside Baptists who, who just don't have the time to be inconvenienced with quote-unquote organized religion, um, they are acting as though they're an ear unto themselves or an eye unto themselves because the truth is that they were meant to plug into a body and to play a role in the body like an ear or an eye. But by being detached from the body, they're acting as though the eye were the whole body or the ear were a whole body. And it's absurd. But that is exactly what, in fact, Lone Ranger Christians are doing. To be a follower of Jesus in New, in New Testament terms is to be associated with some church body. To be doing ministry in, in, in relationship with others and worshiping in relationship with others and growing in discipleship in relationship with others. There's always an otherness and relationality built in uh, to the, the New Testament's understanding of what it is to belong to the kingdom. And then Paul goes on and says, but in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? There's that Salvador Dali idea again. As it is, there are many parts, but there's only one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable or unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. No one in Western culture takes time to dress up your nose and cover it, but you do probably want to cover up other parts of your body. That's what he's getting at. And then he goes on to say, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that as parts should have equal concern for each other. What Paul's getting at there is that we tend to uh, evaluate some roles in the church as being more important uh, than others and um, having uh, be more, more essential. And we give more honor to the ones that we think are more important. So the preacher you know, gets, gets more honor than the Sunday school volunteer or, or the, the person who works with youth or who sets up chairs or, or whatever. What Paul is saying is that God gives special honor to the parts that humans give the least honor to. God places a special value on those unknown persons who are working behind the scenes, who set up chairs or who come in and, and, and touch up the walls to keep the building looking presentable or who clean the toilets or who change the diapers. Uh, and in human reasoning, those, those, those roles seem less important than the preacher or, or the executive pastor. But in fact, uh, God gives special honor to those roles precisely because uh, they're the unknowns, uh, the ones who are working behind the scenes. And what it means is that no one, no matter what you do in the body of Christ, should think that you're more important to the body than somebody else. And what it means is that those people who are, and they tend to be the majority, who are doing the quote-unquote menial task, uh, the ones that don't get much applause or get much recognition, you should take a lot of satisfaction in knowing that God gives a special honor to the role that you're playing. And that role, in fact, is far more important 
than human reasoning might lead us to think. And then Paul ends by saying, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Each one of you. We are all called to be part of the body of Christ. And so if one part is suffering, we all suffer. If one part's not doing its job, we're all hindered. If one part is severed from the body, pretending like it's an eye unto itself or an ear unto itself, well, that, that negatively impacts the whole body of Christ. The thing is that God is a communal, relational God. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the fingerprint of the Trinity, the fingerprint of this communal, relational God is on everything. It's like an artist whose character is expressed with every stroke of a painting. God paints the world in a way that reflects his relational character. You see it everywhere. The more scientists learn about the world, the more we discover that all of reality is composed as uh, interdependent relationships. Everything depends on everything else. Every distinct thing is what it is because of its interdependent parts. It's, everything is defined by its relationship to everything else. Uh, philosophers call this a relational ontology, in case you were wondering. I wanted to title this message a relational ontology, but my folks who I work with this thought it was just too heady. But, and for those of you who care, it's a relational ontology I'm talking about here this morning. So it's like every molecule is what it is because of the particular way atoms interact in it. And every distinct object is what it is because of the unique way the molecules interact within it. It defines what it is. The water in this cup is what it is because of the way its molecules interact with one another. And the cup is what it is, and the stool is what it is, and I am what I am, and you are what you are, and the church is what the church is, and the air that we breathe is what it is because of the particular way that the molecules interact with one another and the way the atoms within the molecules interact with one another. Everything is an interdependent relationship with everything else. And, and that means everything carries the signature of the communal God. Relationality is built into everything. You see it in living organisms. We're finding that every living organism is what's called a complex adaptive system in which because of the unique way that its parts interact with one another, the whole is greater than the parts. The relationality produces something that all the parts put together in and of themselves could never do. So it's like this ant, for example. Every individual ant is what it is because atoms of its atoms that relate to each other in particular interdependent ways, that form molecules that relate to each other in particular interdependent ways, that form organs that interact with each other in particular interdependent ways. It's all coordinated by a little teeny mind that's composed of neurons firing in particular interdependent ways. And so an ant, like every other organism, is, is, is in a sense a society of interdependent parts. Society, conglomeration of interdependent parts. And the whole is more than the parts. In fact, check this out. Each ant interacts with other ants to form an incredibly complex ant colony. Now, ants are actually pretty stupid. If you've ever met one, they're, they don't, they're pretty dumb. They, they can only do six behaviors. But the way that they do those six behaviors in relationship to the way other ants do their particular behaviors creates this distinct colony that's far more complex than any particular ant could ever envision. So an ant colony becomes a sort of mind in which all the ants function as as little neurons. The whole is greater than the parts. That ant colony is an entity unto itself. And it's composed of the the interdependent uh, relationships within it. 
That, that ant colony carries the signature of the triune God, the relational God, the interdependent God. And that's how it is with everything. The God who is himself an interdependent community creates a world that is an interdependent community in which every distinct thing within that world is an interdependent community composed of parts which are themselves interdependent communities. It's interdependent community all the way up and all the way down. From God down to the quantum particles, it's interdependent community. It's relationality. Everything is relationship. All reality is like that. So it's not surprising that when, when Jesus dies to bring the church into being, guess what? It is an interdependent community. It is a body. It functions like a body. As we saw uh, Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians 12, the body is composed of interdependent parts. It's like our body. Every part needs all the other parts to do what they're supposed to do for, for the body to be what the body's supposed to be. So let's talk about my body for a second. Check out this body. Like a lot of you, like a lot of you, I got, I got a 55-year-old aging, aching, sagging, stupid body. It's unbelievable how this thing starts to ache. I find it's hard to move without grunting. Uh, it's, just, it's just what it is. It is what it is. It's like unbelievable. My brain keeps on thinking I'm 25, which is why I keep getting hurt. <laughs> I keep doing things. Uh, it's, uh, playing kickball the other day. <laughs> you kick a ball. I used to be able to really do that well. Now I do it. And it's like, oh, the next day. It's like, man, that was a he- kicking a bowling ball or something. <laughs> My right cheek is still sore. It's just ridiculous. But back in the day. Back in the day. Oh, those glory days, they pass you by. Glory days, got the wink of a young girl's eye or however it goes. Glory days. So back in the day, this body wasn't aching and sagging. You know, this, this body was ripped. I, I, I had a stud body. That's all I was going to say about it. I, 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 I could bench press 300 pounds and I could do a marathon in under two hours and 50 minutes. And I'm not exaggerating by an hour and 20 minutes tonight when I say that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I used to do these ultra marathons. Ultra marathons are, are, are races over, over the length of a marathon, which is 26 miles. Um, I've always had a lot of endurance. I was never very fast, but I had a, heart, a real good endurance. I have a heart runs in the family. We've got these horse hearts that just kind of chug along. Uh, my heart rate is still usually uh, under, 50, under 50, around 45 or so. It just, just chugs. Uh, so I had a lot of endurance, not much speed. But in my 30s and early 40s, I wanted to see, for whatever reasons, maybe it was a midlife crisis, I don't know, but I wanted to see how far and how fast I could go. I just want to push myself. And so I started doing these 50-kilometer uh, races that are 31 miles long, and these 50-mile races, those are my favorite, out in the woods, these trail races. Um, and, uh, or 100-kilometer races, which are 62 miles. I did one 100-mile race, which really was nasty. I, I, I didn't like that. But I was pretty good at this. I, I had a lot of fun. Those are my glory days. And my best race was this 100-kilometer World Championships. It was held here in Minnesota. It was the only time that the World Championships were held in the United States and happened to be in our backyard. I, I uh, ran it with my, my, my running lunatic friend, Rob Foley, who, who attends Woodland Hills Church. And uh, we ran part of the race together. So it was the World Championships. I was at an advantage because, um, well, see, I, God's sense of humor is he gave me a world-class heart uh, but a body of a wrestler. So, so my, I always weighed more than everybody else in the race. If I was about 50 pounds lighter, I could have been something, let me tell you. But I'm carrying around, I, I, I was 170 pounds when I was in tip-top shape. And most of these, you know, you've seen the world-class runners, they look like they're starving to death. They got 120-pound twigs. 
But I had an advantage because this race was, was a run from Newfoundland down to, to uh, two harbors. It was just straight south, kind of a trek, and it was into a 20-mile-an-hour wind with gusts of, of over 30 miles an hour. And I always did good in adverse conditions because it didn't affect me as much as it did the twig people. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just uh, strength comes in handy when you're going against a 20 mile an hour wind. So I beat a lot of people that day that I know on a normal day they would have creamed me. Uh, but uh, I was doing all right. So I'm running along and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really strong. Uh, I, I'm, I'm up in the front toward not not leader, but I was up in the you know front towards the front pack. And then around mile 30, feeling really good, not being breathing hard or anything, but uh, my toe starts to hurt, my big toe. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the feet of uh, long-distance runners, but they're really gross. Uh, If they have toenails left, uh, they're all black, and oh, they just get really crusty. It's really gross, because all the pounding of the toe on the the shoe, it just kills the toenail. And so for whatever reasons, on this particular race, my... I still had a toenail there on my big toe, and it starts to hurt. And by mile 40, this thing is just throbbing, and it was like a knife stabbing into the toe with every step I took. It was nasty, and it was starting to slow me down. I had to start to limp, kind of. I was favoring it because it hurt so bad, which then put extra pressure on my right leg, working muscles that I was not training them to work that way. So I developed, I started to get cramps in my calf, and that starts to feel like a knife jabbing into my calves. So around mile 42, I got knives on both legs. My right step, my left step was a knife in the toe. My right step was a knife in the calf. And it was really slowing me up. I went from a 7.30 pace down to over 9-minute mile pace. And it was bugging me because races aren't supposed to test your toes. They're supposed to test your endurance and your wind and the strength of your legs. And I was doing great on that account. But my stupid toe wasn't going along with the program. Really irritating. So people start passing me, and they look in way worse condition than me. They're all tired and breathing hard, whatever. And I'm fresh as a daisy, but I can't run because I got knives going into my legs. It was very, very irritating. It just goes to show that in a 100-kilometer race, you wouldn't think you need your toe. What difference does your toe make? But you, you need that toe because if my, right, my left toe isn't doing well, my right leg isn't going to be doing well. If my right leg isn't doing well, it's going to hurt the whole body, and it's going to hurt my race performance. So I'm going along here very irritated. I'm not going to quit, though, because I'm a stud, right? I, I don't quit. So I'm running with these knives in both legs, like, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. Then around mile 50, something happens. Right after the 50-mile supply station, I, I'm, 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 I'm hobbling along. I feel sorry for myself, mad as can be, because people are passing me who look in way less condition than, I, than me. I'm chewing on a power bar like I always did. And then all of a sudden, the pain vanishes. I mean, just instantly vanishes. And as I'm hobbling along... I begin to feel this kind of warm liquid in my left foot. And then I begin to notice a squishing sound. Squish, squish, squish. Like I was running on water or something. And I look down, and my front of my, my, my shoe is just completely red. Because what happened was my toe exploded. <laughs> it just exploded. The pressure underneath the toenail just got so, so intense, it just popped out. Which was wonderful. It felt so good. I don't know if you've ever dropped anything on your toes and had to go to the doctor to get relief. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. Where I did this once, I dropped a 12-pound brick on my toe, and it was just throbbing so bad that night. So I went to the doctor. What they do is he drilled a hole in the toenail. Have you ever had this happen to you? You drill a hole in the nail, and then the blood just starts squirting out. It goes like two feet. It was like, and it feels so good. It's like ecstasy. Like oh, oh, oh. 
And that's how I felt. I just, I, I was like, oh, this is wonderful. So I start running with my normal cadence again. I'm getting back in the groove. The cramp goes away. I start picking up speed, go back to my 730 pace, passed about 12 people in the last 10 miles, ended up coming in as the seventh American and the 25th in the world. And that was my glory days. Oh, that, that, those are the glory days. But it just goes to show that every part of your body needs every other part. You don't have to clap. <laughs> well, I had, I had an advantage. But see, the, I can't say to my toe in a 100-kilometer in in race, I have no need of you. You wouldn't think you need your toes, but in fact, you do. No one trains their toes. I would even look like training your toes, getting shaped toes. But, but you need, every part needs every other part. My left toe ain't doing good. My right leg ain't going to be doing good. So I ain't going to be doing good. And it's the way it is with our bodies, and it is, it's the way it is with the body of Christ. Christ, the body of Christ requires every part to be doing its part to be playing the role. Uh, Christ needs us all to step up and do the role that the Spirit is calling us to do, and all of us have such a role. And what I want us to see is that that need, when I say Christ needs us, it's a real need. It's a real need because things really depend on what we do and on what we don't do. One of the most remarkable things about the God of the Bible is that he's an all-powerful, sovereign God, And yet he chooses to create a world in which he makes himself, to some degree, needy, dependent on people. It's like God didn't just put his signature, his communal, relational, interdependent signature on creation. He puts his signature, that communal, interdependent signature, on his relationship with creation. So that he himself is interdependent, to some degree, on his creation. The thing is, when it comes to God's stuff, we don't usually like to think that things really depend on us. We don't like to feel the responsibility. When it comes to God stuff, feeling like, 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 like things of, of kingdom significance really depend on what we do. And that's partly why we have, that, that, that motivates a theology, a very common theology that's out there, that says that God re- doesn't really depend on us. That says that God's sovereignty is such that his will is always done, regardless of what we do or don't do. The sovereign God would never leverage anything on us wimpy human beings. And that takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. Yeah, we should participate. We should do what we're supposed to do. But, you know, God's will will be done. And I find this kind of thinking all over the place. And so people think, well, you know, if we didn't have enough Sunday school volunteers, so that couple had to go away and ended up going to a different church, it must not have been God's will for them to attend here. How easy. How easy. No one has to feel bad. I spoke with a pastor a couple of years ago who uh, was telling me about the struggles that he was having. He was a church planter, and, and he started this church in a movie theater, and then they were looking for their own building. And it was quite a hassle. I could, I could empathize with him. At one point, uh, they found a building that was in their locale uh, that they were ministering in, and uh, it looked like it was perfect. And so he had his assistant... I told his assistant to check into that and to look and see who owns it and, and, and uh, what price are they asking. So two weeks later, the senior pastor asked his, uh, asked his assistant what she found out about that building. And it turns out she forgot. She got distracted, got doing other things, and she just forgot. So they immediately did some research, found out who owned the building, inquired into it, found out that it was well within their price range, remarkably within their price range, but unfortunately it had sold eight days earlier. And the senior pastor was very aggravated, telling me how frustrated he was. But then he said, he just mentioned, kind of incidentally, well, it must not have been God's will for them to be in that building. God must have had a, a different building in mind. And see, I'm sorry, but I, I believe that is a cop-out. Now, I don't know if it was God's will for them to be in that building. But it 
could have been God's will for them to be in that building, but God needed that assistant to come through and do her job for them to get into that building, and she blew it. Now, God's got grace, and you pick up where you are, and you move forward, and you can bring good out of everything, but that doesn't negate the fact that God was in a position where he needed this lady to come through, or at least it could have conceivably been that way. People say, well, what are you talking about God needing things? It just sounds weird. But see, you can't read the Bible, I don't think, with an open mind and not come away with the conclusion that God, to some degree, puts himself in a position where he needs human beings to play certain roles for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we got Judges uh, chapter 5, for example. It says, very interesting passage. Curse Moraz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Or the word there could be translated warriors. The word help here, Ezra, means to provide assistance. And so what is happening here is this angel of the Lord is, is pronouncing a curse on the people of Moraz, or Moraz because they didn't help God in this battle when he needed them to help him. The God who is an interdependent community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chose to create a world in which he relates to the world, he relates to the world as an interdependent community, which means we do have say-so. We have responsibility, which is what gives our life significance. We, we, things really do depend on us. We have this thing called choice. We have responsibility. We make a difference for better or for worse. You find this throughout the Bible. It's all over the place. Uh, Ezekiel 22 is another great example where uh, it says the people of the land, this is the Lord speaking here, they practice, practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. And because of that, the Lord was going to bring judgment on them. So he says, I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. I looked for someone, but I found no one. So here, the Lord, because the Israel is practicing extortion and committing robbery and oppressing the poor and needy and mistreating the foreigner, God was going to bring judgment on Israel. This is, this is in fact, the reason why God judges nations throughout the Old Testament. Um, but clearly, God didn't want to do that. That wasn't his first choice. God's wrath is never his first choice. He avoids it, if at all possible. And God's wrath is simply the consequences of, 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 of our sin, the, the, the destructive consequences of our sin. He doesn't want to let us go and suffer those consequences. And so he tries to avoid it. He looked for someone to stand in the gap, to repair the wall, someone to, to intercede on behalf of Israel. And the assumption is that if he could have found someone or a group of people, this, this, this judgment would have been avoided. But unfortunately, he couldn't find anyone to stand in the gap. The passage speaks volumes about how important what we do and what we don't do is. It determines the course of things. It also speaks volumes about the importance of prayer. Apparently, sometimes the fate of a nation can hang in the balance on whether someone, God's people, stand in the gap and pray. This is why when disaster happens, God's people shouldn't be sitting there pointing fingers at other folks. The first question we ought to ask is, have we been praying the way we ought to pray? You find this throughout the Bible. God genuinely depends on people to step up and do their role. Genuinely, things, things matter. Things are in the balance. You find it throughout the New Testament. Paul, for example, says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, we are God's co-workers. The word there is synergos. Synergos. He says it again in, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 6. 
As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. The word synergos is a combination of the prefix syn, S-Y-N, which means together or alongside of. And then the word ergos, which means energy to exercise or exert energy or to work. And so syn ergos means to exert energy alongside of another, to work alongside of another, to be a co-worker. Uh, and, and what Paul is saying here is that we are to work in synergy with God. We're to, we're to exert energy, our own energy, our own say-so, our own responsibility, and to do it in sync with God, in relationship with God. It's the same word, synergos, same word that Paul uses uh, when he refers to human co-workers. So, for example, in Colossians 4, he says, these, these are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Paul apparently would have liked to have other co-workers, but no one stepped up. But he says, these, my fellow Jews, were the only ones who, were, who would exert energy alongside of me, who would work alongside of me. And the word he uses is the same word he used when he referred to us as, as co-workers of God. So just as humans who will work alongside one another, they're co-workers of one another, they depend on each other to, to, to do the task that they're called to do for the job to get done, so also God regards us as co-workers. We have our own ergos, our own energy and God's call is for us to use it in sync with him, in synergy with him. So I could never buy into this idea that everything we do is a working out of God's ergos, that God's, God's energy or God's will just decrees what we're going to do as though we didn't have any independent or autonomous energy. No, God here is pleading with us to take our independent energy and to line it up with him. And when we do, things get done. His will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. But to the degree that we don't, then what God wanted to get done doesn't get done. Christ genuinely needs every part of his body to work alongside of him. He's the head, and he, he wants to, uh, the parts of the body to get in line, to get in sync with the head, to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. His body, the body of Christ, will not run as fast as it's supposed to run if the big toe isn't working in sync with the rest of the body, if the calf muscle is being stubborn, or if any other part of the body is, is not working in sync with the head and is not doing the role that they're supposed to do, to that degree, the body will be limping at a over nine-minute mile pace rather than going at the seven-and-a-half-minute mile pace that God knows that it's capable of. God genuinely depends on us. This flies in the face of what most Americans, frankly, think the church is. Uh, most Americans are first and foremost consumers. We see ourselves as consumers. And so we naturally see the church as, as existing to give us something that we're supposed to consume. And, and so the way most people think about it, most Americans, is that, that you know, our job is to maybe contribute a little bit of money, and then the church's job is to give me a nice sermon and have some nice music and take care of my kids and, and, and uh, you know, share the gospel with me and, and help me get connected with friends and whatnot. Kind of a deal that gets arranged. That's how most think about it. That's what church is. But see, if we're thinking in terms of the New Testament, which is what we need to be doing, that model of the church, that consumer model of the church, is a complete, complete misconception. If we're thinking in terms of the New Testament, the church is not a McDonald's. The church isn't there to just meet your needs. The church isn't selling a product. In fact, if we're, if we're thinking in terms of the New Testament, there is no distinction between you and the church. As though the church was one thing and you're another, and the church is supposed to give you something in return for your offering. No, there's no distinction between you and the church. If we're thinking in terms of the New Testament, you are the church, and the church is you. 
We are the church, and the church is us. We're the body of Christ. The church is an interdependent organism. And it's all under the headship of Christ. And all of us have a role to play in it. And Christ needs us to play that role. I, I to be honest with you, as I was putting this message together, I, uh, I really began to feel convicted. I, I, my main role, of course, is to, is to do the research and study and, and to uh, get the word and, and, and deliver the word and, and to feed the flock and to cast the vision for the church. Uh, but that's not the only role I'm supposed to play. And I began to feel convicted that on these other areas, I'm not doing all that God would have me to do. I, I don't think, for example, that I've been praying as intently uh, and as, as, as long for the church as I should be praying. Just honest here. I, I don't think I've been pouring myself out uh, to the full extent that I ought to be pouring myself out in certain other areas of the church other than what I do on uh, the weekend. Um, and I'm very aware that that means that the body as a whole has been negatively impacted by my ne- negligence. It affects all of you. And not just because I'm the senior pastor. No, it's simply because I'm part of the body. And so are you. And what you do or don't do negatively or positively affects me and everybody else. We're in this together. Whatever we're going to accomplish, we've got to accomplish together. We need one another. Every one of us has a role to play. And what God, Woodland Hills Church, or whatever church you're, you're, you're associated with, it will never be all that God knows it can be and accomplish all that God knows it can accomplish unless each of us are doing the role that God calls us to do. Everyone has an important role to play. We saw this in, in the passage that we read. The Spirit gives to each one a gift to share, a role to play. There are no superfluous members of the body of Christ. There is no dead weight. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a role to play. It's just a matter of you discerning what it is and then stepping up the plate to play it. I mean, some folks maybe say, well, look, I'm wounded. I was wounded in my previous church, and I just got to sit and I just got to take. I just got to consume. I just got to rest and be ministered to. And that's legitimate. There are seasons where you just have to sit and be okay and get healed. Valid, valid point. But also know this, that that is always a temporary uh, state that you're in. Uh, when, when you break your leg, there's a time where you just got to rest and not walk at all. But before too long, there's a time where if you continue to rest, you're going to be doing your leg more harm than good. Uh, there's a time where you got to get up and start walking again. Start, start, otherwise, the, the muscles atrophy. You've got to start building. The way to continue healing, in the first stage is to rest, but in the second stage is to start doing again. And so, yeah, rest as long as you need to rest, but know that your healing will only continue to go forward if you get back in the game and start doing the role that you're supposed to play. It's a temporary time that we step out when we're wounded. This, this feels it's like it's got a weight here on me for this reason. Um, I thank God wherever Christ is preached. Paul did that, and so do I. Wherever Christ is preached, and I thank God for every church that proclaims the name of Christ and, and teaches a biblical model of the kingdom. I, I thank God for that. And I uh, don't feel like it's our job, as I said before, to keep everyone going here. And we bless people wherever they're called. Um, and, and that's wonderful. Thank God wherever Christ is preached. At the same time, and I don't think I've ever done this before, but, but I, 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 I got to own up. We've got to own up to the fact that we have something unique going on here. Uh, that I, I think I've been reticent to say. something. There's a unique vision of God and of the kingdom that God's given to us, and it feels very important to me right now. 
If you've been here for any length of time, you'll know that uh, Woodland Hills Church, we, we look pretty much like every other church on a weekend service, and our name certainly is about as typical of an American church as a name could be. Uh, it doesn't reflect any of our vision. But if you get be, be beyond the name and get beneath the surface, you'll find that actually this this body is, is, is quite different. It's not typical at all. And I don't say that as a prideful thing at all. I'm just trying to name something, call something out loud. I, I need to own up to this. God's given us a unique vision of God. Uh, a God who looks entirely like Jesus Christ, where Jesus is the full and complete revelation of who God is. A God of outrageous mercy. A God of outrageous love. A God who's holy, but whose holiness isn't, doesn't have a malevolent streak in it. And a, a God who, who, who is all-powerful, but who doesn't micro-control people. That's not necessarily typical of American evangelical churches. And God's given us a unique vision of the kingdom, a kingdom that looks like Jesus, a giant Jesus, a corporate Jesus, who loves and serves and sacrifices for others as Jesus did. That's not necessarily typical. You don't find that everywhere in churches in America. We need to say that out loud. God's given us a prophetic vision of how the church has been thoroughly co-opted by politics and by nationalism and by consumerism and by individualism. That's not at all typical of American evangelical churches. God's given us a unique call. Uh, to, to form a people who are freed from the isms of this culture, to put on display the unique character of the kingdom, and to put on display God's outrageous love to all people at all times. Amen. God's given us a call and understanding about how important it is to collapse all of our judgments towards other people and to just live to bless other people and to serve other people, not to try to control other people or pass laws against them, but just, just to model the humble character of God to all people at all times and how we're, we're called to love our enemies and to swear off all violence. That's certainly not typical of churches in America. There's a unique thing that God has put on our heart. God, we've just seen, has given us a unique understanding of faith, a faith that is not uh, the opposite of doubt and that's not afraid of thinking and asking questions and disagreeing and it's not afraid of saying, I don't know. That's not necessarily typical for churches in, in, in America. God's given us a unique theology about the world being engulfed in spiritual warfare so that when we see evil out there, we don't say, oh, that's the work of God. We say that's the work of the devil or fallen powers or, or wicked human beings, but, but it's not the work of God. And we understand our lives to be uh, caught in this war zone and we have a role to play in this war zone. That's not necessarily typical. You don't find that everywhere. God's given us a beautiful call. As we said last week, and it's in your bulletin this morning, uh, you need call to confront poverty and to serve the poor and the homeless. That's not, that's not necessarily t- typical of churches in America. And I, God's given us a, a passion to confront racism and to tear down walls along racial lines and socioeconomic lines. That's not necessarily typical. God's given us a, a, a passion about empowering women uh, to be in ministry and to be in leadership and to be preachers and even senior pastors, if that's where calls, God calls them to be, that's not necessarily typical for churches in America. It looks the same on the weekend. It looks, it looks the same in terms of the name, but get beneath the surface. And we've got to own up to the fact that there's a unique vision of the kingdom and a unique vision of God and of the Christian life that, that we need to embrace and need to celebrate. And see, I want to, I want to influence as many people as possible with that unique vision. I want people to come under the influence of this and be molded by this. And it, it, it feels like a, a weighty thing here, but for that to happen, we need everybody to step up in the body of Christ and to do the role that they're called to do. In fact, in fact, God has, what we've seen the last 10, 15 years in particular is that there are people all over the globe, all over the globe that are waking up to this vision of, of God and of the kingdom. 
And it's a beautiful thing. All over, little pockets of people who are catching this vision on their own. It's not networked. It's all, it's a grassroots thing. It's under the radar screen of most people. But all over the globe, people are getting this unique vision. This, this Christ-centered idea, Christ-centered vision of God and a Christ-centered vision of the kingdom with this Christ-centered theology. And we are feeling, the leadership of Woodland Church over the last two years in particular, we're feeling that we're going to have some kind of a leadership role in and influencing and forming that rising movement. We have, in fact, it's already happening. Uh, every weekend, we've got 10 to 15,000 people who download the messages from 98 different countries. Um, and uh, the United States has the most, but the second most is China. We're exerting our influence everywhere. And we have every weekend people who write us or who call us or who visit us and they're catching this vision of the kingdom, and they, are, they want to be somehow aligned. We're trying to figure out what that looks like all the time. Just this morning, met this young lady, uh, Marina, Marina from Sweden. Marina, would you stand up? Okay, this wonderful young lady, praise God. This is what I'm talking about. So she's coming from Sweden to go to Bethel College, and the reason is because... A number of years ago, she read letters from a skeptic and salvaged her, her, her struggling faith. She became a parishioner, and she gets the vision of the kingdom that we're teaching here and whatever, so she wants to come under this and be under the influence of this and become a pastor. So she chose Bethel, and now she can be working in tandem with us. Yeah! Amen! We're seeing that all over the place. Vanessa, who was doing the announcements this morning, she wants to get her doctorate, but she's committed to sticking around here because she wants to, she feels called to be part of this vision, part of this movement. And, and so it's huge. What God's put on us is huge. It's exciting. It's unique. It's beautiful. But we, it will never happen unless everybody steps up and does the role that they're called to play. See, we have, we're part of something here. If you're called to this body, it, it, you're part of something that is huge. And it's going to be really significant. It's an opportunity we all have. But the question is, will we step up and play that role? In fact, I, I'll say this. And I don't mean to get too weird. But it feels like a prophetic thing that God has put on my heart. Um, so I'm just going to say this. I don't think it's going to be completed in my lifetime, but I believe that by the second half of this century, if the Lord does not return, uh, this movement, this Jesus-looking movement with this Jesus-centered vision of God and this Jesus-looking kingdom and this Christ-centered theology, I believe it's going to revolutionize and radically alter what we call Christianity. This religion that has, for the last 1,500 years, been identified as Christianity, um, it is dying. And that's a good thing. Uh, the, the, the religion that tried to conquer the world and to control the world wanted to do that in Jesus' name. That church militant and triumphant. Uh, it has been dying for several centuries. Its last stronghold is here in America where Christians still think in triumphalistic ways. All Everywhere else where it's reigned, it, it, is, it has died. But it's in the process of dying, and that's a good thing because out of the rubble of the decay of Christendom, that triumphalistic kind of model of Christianity. Out of that rubble is rising this movement that I'm talking about of people who get that God looks like Jesus Christ and their highest aspiration is simply to live like Jesus and serve like Jesus and, and uh, just manifest the humble character of God like Jesus. And it's, I'm convinced going to change the, the, the way Christianity looks. And we feel like we have a, a leadership role to play in forming that movement. Not that we're the hub or the center or anything like that, but just some leadership role to play. But that requires all of us. And we all have an opportunity to have our lives significantly count towards this. And we, we need, and the kingdom needs, Christ needs every person to step up to play the role for that to happen. So that couple that came here and, and, and now is gone. Um, 
we, we, we don't have a chance to influence them with this unique vision of God in the kingdom and the Christian life. And we don't have a chance to benefit from the gifts that they would have had to offer. And I don't know if it was God's will for them to come to this church, but I do know it wasn't God's will for them to not come because of that reason. That, that, that couple left because someone, some part of the body didn't step up and do what God needed them to do, really needed them to do. Because someone didn't stand in the gap in the way that God needed them to stand in the gap. That, 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 that couple left because the toe, the toe or the calf or some part of the body wasn't in sync with the head and playing the role that God wanted it to play. And so the question I leave us with is simply this. If, if this is your church body, what role does God want you to play? Now we have ministries outside the church, which really are an extension of Wilder Hills Church, and we bless those, and that's wonderful. But there's also the needs of the ministry of the church and, and, and seeing this body do what God wants it to do. What role does God have for you? What is God calling you to do? And will you say yes to it? And I just want you to live in that question for a little bit. And so at the end of the service, we go back to the tables and just look at the various ministries, uh, consider them, pray over them. Uh, when you put in your dot, doesn't mean that you're certain that that's what you're supposed to do. It just means that you're interested in finding out more about that. Uh, maybe it's something you want to talk about with your, your kingdom peeps. What, what are you wired to do? But play the role that God has you to play. And so I'm going to pray for us here to seal this in our hearts. As I do, I want the prayer team to come forward. I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you need to have prayed for, this is the role that they're called to do. And they do it well. And whatever you share is held in confidence. So I encourage you to come. And maybe it's to discern what role God has, has for you. Um, maybe it's something entirely different, but come and take advantage of this and spend time out at the ministry table. So Holy Spirit, thank you for calling us uh, to weaving us into a body and for, for God having uh, for the courage to entrust things to us. Uh, God, we thank you for the uh, call of this particular body and for the message that you've given us and the vision that you've given us and for entrusting to some degree the well-being of this vision to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just give us a fire that would motivate us to step up. Even if it means altering our schedules, altering our life, altering the way we spend our time to be poured out for the kingdom. God, what we do here has e eternal significance. Help us to see that and to say yes to it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people of the body of Christ said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and do what God calls you to do. Amen.